You are listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. On today's show, interesting or bizarre nutrition gadgets. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Laura Creek Newman, and I am hosting the show today. And with me, I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Ashlyn Noble. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about some new and bizarre or interesting nutrition devices that have popped up. And our society loves tech devices, right? There is a device for everything now. Because we're also pretty health obsessed, um, always looking for that fountain of youth, that optimal health, so many of the devices that are coming out are have a real health focus and especially a nutrition focus. So we thought we'd take a look at a few of these today and see what there is with them, if there is any evidence or research or, or what. So we're going to talk about three different devices today. Each of us is going to tackle one new one. And I'm going to start with one that I've been seeing quite a lot in my regular social media feeds and as well as my professional focused feeds. And for anybody who doesn't happen to know, I'm a registered dietitian. So I do follow a lot of nutrition type news and and other dietitians out there. So the device that I've been hearing about recently is something called the NEMA Gluten Sensor. And this actually first debuted in 2015. I believe that's when its uh, sort of crowdfunding beta version came out, but it's been available to the public in the U.S. since 2016, I believe, and in Canada since 2017 now. Actually, this company has another sensor that is going to be hitting the market very soon. It's a peanut sensor for peanut allergens, Um, but I'm not going to be talking about that one today. We'll wait for the follow-up podcast on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. First, we should go over, well, why would somebody want to sense gluten in their food? I mean, gluten is the one of the boogeymen in the nutrition world these days. For many reasons, people tend to want to avoid it. A lot of those reasons are kind of bunk reasons, but I'm not going to get into that today. However, there is a group of people that have something called celiac disease for whom they must avoid gluten in food. Following a gluten-free diet, a very, very strict gluten-free diet, is the only way to treat or prevent illness from their condition. So for this group of people, that's what this device is for. It's really working for them to help make sure that they're eating food that is safe for them. So what is the NEMA? Well, it's this portable device. It's a little triangle, little black triangle. It's got a little display screen on it. Um, It's maybe say four or five inches high or so. And that's the device. And it has these little pods in it where you take a pea-sized amount of food or a drop of soup or beverage. You put that in and you kind of mash it up in there. And then you put that dis- the disposable cartridge in. And within a couple of minutes, it tells you whether or not the food has gluten in it. So it'll oh. give you a smiley face if it's gluten-free or it'll give you a <laughs> frowny face. Or I believe it used to have a frowny face and now it has just a wheat symbol if there is <laughs> gluten in your food. It'll give you two lines if you're pregnant and one if you're not and half a squiggly line. That's actually kind of how it works when you get into the chemistry (laughs) of it. But how sensitive is it? Because I know some people, like, just the most minute amount of gluten will 
hurt them. Absolutely, and that's a really good point. So when I'm talking that strict gluten-free, we're talking about one sixtieth of a standard slice of bread can cause a reaction or can cause damage. So like, you're, so that's minute, right? That's a couple of crumbs on a plate or a dusting of flour. So the FDA and Canada follows suit with this recommendation has stated that things can be labeled gluten-free if they contain uh, less than 20 parts per million of gluten, because that is the level that most people should not have any reaction or damage happening there. If a food contains 10 parts per million, yes, it still has some gluten, but that is within that safe level there. But this is still a really minute amount. That's less than insect parts are allowed. Well, there you go, right? Although there is cricket powder now available at uh, Superstore in case anybody's interested in trying that out. As like a protein powder? Yeah, Yeah. ground crickets. Just like mix it into your drinks? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's so great. Like if people uh, adopt that because it's so environmentally friendly, you can raise crickets like a million of them in a few days with like hardly any environmental impact. It's so cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's got to be one of the new protein frontiers, but we digress here. Yeah, we can talk true. about that. And I'm just so excited. I can't believe it's available at Superstore. That's so mainstream. You know what? Superstore is <laughs> really good for bringing new, interesting stuff out. I, I will give Loblaws that. For any issues that they have had, they do have new and interesting products. No name cricket. No name cricket. <laughs> well, it's President's Choice President's cricket. President's Choice cricket. <laughs> I, I miss no name. You know, I'm not called Jiminy anymore. <laughs> Okay, so back to gluten and the NEMA. So the NEMA is optimized to sense things at that 20 parts per million threshold, which is quite sensitive in terms Mm -hmm. of amounts of gluten and things. It can sense lower than that, lower amounts of gluten than that at times. This is interesting, and it's great that it can actually be really sensitive, but there can be some problems creating uncertainty around typically safe foods, and I'll talk about that a little bit more Mm -hmm. as I go on. Especially since it's a binary readout. Exactly, and that's where it comes from. So I'll get to that in a little bit, in a minute. So how does the NEMA work? Because honestly, when I first read this, I'm like, no way. There's no way that this works. You need a lab, you need fancy equipment, you need... Things that people can't do in a little tabletop device. Quite honestly, that is my reaction to most of these things. And I think I'm a little overreactive to it. Like, it can't work. And then it's like, oh, actually, these things can work. So I have to realize tech is advancing way faster than my brain is. Well, like we said a couple episodes ago, you know, just because it's, it's called a conspiracy doesn't mean it's not actually happening. Right. That is true. That is true. So, of course... I looked into it a little bit more, and it the way that the NEMA works is it uses an antibody gluten test, and it's a lateral flow test. So this is where it comes to that pregnancy test thing. It's that same sort of idea where the, the food that may or may not contain gluten, it kind of moves along um, a sensing thing that has these antibodies that could bind to gluten. So if gluten is in there, it will bind and that will change the color of something and the sensor will read that and that's where you'll get that yes or no, it's available. And that's how pregnancy tests work or like ketone tests, things like that, where that strip that you would take kind of absorbs the fluid or the, the mixture and then it will tell you that yes or no answer if something is is available there. So that is a valid way of testing for gluten. It is not the, the gold standard for testing for gluten in food. So when a product wants to get its gluten-free designation, it will send their product to a lab that does ELISA, E-L-I-S-A, testing. 
And this is considered the gold standard test. And this is much more in depth than that lateral flow antibody type of test. And it's able to test gluten in a, a different way. There's two different kinds of this test. There's the Isn't sandwich. Eliza? Maybe it's Eliza. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't look up a video on that one. I'm pretty sure it's Eliza. <laughs> the Eliza test. Okay. That makes sense. It's always E-L-I-S-A test. That's that's what they use for, for testing many things, but gluten is a very common one. So the uh, a common type of test is the sandwich ELISA, which is a little bit cheaper and more portable. Sandwiches almost always have gluten in them. Almost, yes. So there's the sandwich ELISA, and then the best test for totally testing all the gluten is called the competitive ELISA test. One of the reasons why the antibody and the sandwich methods are a little less reliable is because they're not able to test gluten that's been broken down at all. So some foods, especially fermented foods, things like beer, soy sauce, hydrolyzed vegetable or plant protein, the gluten is there and it's broken down and will still cause a reaction in people, but the tests can't sense that. Only the competitive, that very expensive, really in-depth test can find those types of gluten. And NEMA, NEMA is very upfront about what it can and can't test. So it can't test alcohol in its sensor for various reasons because it will damage the test. And also if you were to put beer in, the type of gluten that's in there wouldn't be sensed. Oh, interesting. So if like somebody made a sauce with beer, then that would wouldn't show up in it wouldn't necessarily you know especially yeah if you put beer but you're using something like rice flour and other gluten-free ingredients you might think it's and not be thinking about the beer part of it you might think it's gluten-free and the NEMA wouldn't necessarily be able right. to test that or something like a beer cheese soup or something could be a very yeah. iffy type of of food there and so and this and NEMA is very upfront about that's that good. yeah it is and and that's something that when you go through their FAQ pages and their blog posts they're really upfront about what it can do what it can't do the challenges that they've had so how does it stack up so far so the best research that they have is doing their own research and then comparing it to a lab that's testing the same food. The results that they get are pretty comparable to that lab test. The thing that they're missing is any third-party testing. So, and again, they're very upfront about that on their website. They're saying we're looking into getting that third-party testing done because we know we don't want it just mm -hmm. to be our word. It seems very much like they don't want people to be getting sick. They, yes, of course, they're trying to make money off of it, but they're not just trying to throw something out there and make as much money as they can before people figure out it's a scam. Good, they yeah. seem like scientists. They do, right? And it seems like they're putting a lot of work into it. Um, so I think it's still good to hold off on that definitive judgments on this product. But from the results that they have, they do compare quite favorably to what a lab testing the exact same products is getting. So that's pretty good. So it gets the Mythbusters plausible? It gets it totally gets it. And and even that possible. One of the biggest concerns, as we mentioned, is the fact that it can in fact test or detect gluten at lower levels than 20 parts per million, but it gives that binary result. Yeah. Now for people who have the NEMA app, because of course every device that we have <laughs> isn't just a device, it has an app for your mm -hmm. smartphone. So for people who have the latest version of that app, if it detects gluten in a food, the app will try to guess if it's low gluten or high gluten. Ooh. But again, those ranges are pretty big. So I forget exactly what those ranges are, but they can be in the like 30, 40, 50 parts per million range mm. there. I mean, if there's gluten, there's gluten. That's something that... 
people need would need to know. Yeah. But if it's five parts per million and it's a food that is certified gluten-free and you've eaten it before, one of the big challenges is now people are more concerned about what they're eating. And for this population, as anybody who has a significant allergy or food intolerance, something like that, stress about food and what yeah. you're eating and whether or not you're going to feel okay after you, you have it is already... Yeah, it's, it's already a big part of your life, right? So... Yeah. If you could finally feel, yes, I can eat this food, I know it's fine, it's got that certified label on it, and now my little device is telling me, no, there's gluten in it, that just adds that extra stress and where it's not necessary to be mm-hmm. there, maybe. So that would be one of the big challenges. And when you go to the celiac associations, uh, their websites, that's one of their big concerns. It's just creating that extra fear because there's already so much fear out there. So it is worth taking it with a grain of salt. On the whole, it looks like this is a really interesting device. It looks like it actually does work the, say, the way that it says it's going to work. They're I'm impressed putting... that we found one. You know what? I am too. <laughs> yeah. So it looks like they're putting a lot of effort into making sure that their device works the way that they're intending it to work. They're trying to get it validated from outside methods. They're comparing it to already validated tools. And, and these are all really good signs that you want to see with this type of a device out there. So you said that the capsules that you put in there are disposable. How much does one of these tests cost? I believe they're $5 for one of these. It's like a little tube. It's Do you remember those little M&M minis with the yeah, pop yeah. top tubes? It looks kind of like that. And then you put the thing in and you kind of, you twist the cap on to grind it all up. And then when the test is done, you throw that whole pod hmm. out. So it's about $5 for a test. So if you're testing one part of your food, one little piece, $5 for a meal, if you can afford that, okay, great. But now let's say you're ordering many things and you're suspecting that maybe there's cross-contamination with gluten, which is one of the biggest issues for people with yeah, gluten yeah. With gluten issues is that little sprinkle of flour, that knife that was used to cut a loaf of bread now is touching your this and that. Mm-hmm. So if you feel the need to test every little item on your five-course plate, that's $25 that you've just sunk in, never mind the cost of the meal on top of that. And the device. And the device itself is $280. Yeah. So it's definitely not something that everybody can afford. And you'd have to, to weigh and balance where, how much testing is necessary. One thing that they do mention is that there's there's this term called hotspots for food when people are concerned about that cross-contamination. So things like cut lines, because was that knife cleaned between uses? Grill marks, you know, did they put that food on a place on the grill where food that might have had gluten was? So those might be areas that you might be more wanting to test as opposed to the whole food if you're reasonably confident, but you're if you're suspecting that cross-contamination there. And that's something that NEMA has looked at in their testing as well. They will say that, you know, if you test those hotspot things, you might find that a higher gluten testing, it tests positive for gluten, but then you test a part that doesn't have that cross-contamination and that shows gluten-free. So you know that the amount of gluten in a food can be different. It's that catch-22. We want more information. More information can help us make more decisions, but sometimes information actually just opens more questions than it does give us answers there. So then you kind of wonder if if you're really anxious, you know, do you just end up testing every little bite of food because you're so worried about something? But, you know, I can see how somebody who's already very concerned about their food could feel that need. especially hypervigilance. Exactly. Exactly. anxiety. I mean, it's a first gen thing, too. I mean, if it works the way we hope it works as we get future generations of the device, it may become a bit more useful. 
Right. And cheaper. Right. Yeah. The the newest generation is coming out very soon, I mm-hmm. believe. The second generation one around the same time as their peanut sensor is coming out. So perhaps at some point they will change it to actually show being able to tell you how much gluten is in your food. So then you'll know, well, if anything under 20 parts per million is fine for me. So if it says 17, I'm okay with that. And that may help because that yes, no answer, as we know, the world is shades of gray. It's not (laughs) black and white, right? So perhaps down the road, they might be able to do that. They say that it is a tool to add to your gluten-free toolkit in in addition to asking your questions, being vigilant, staying away from sources of cross-contamination. And that's the recommendation from the celiac associations and that as well. It will not take the place of making sure that you're talking to your server about what's in your food, where did it come from, how is it prepared, all of this. But if it can be a good tool to add in there for extra assurance. Yeah, I feel like it would be really useful for people who maybe want to test some of their favorite packaged foods that maybe are doesn't say gluten-free on them, but doesn't have any, you know, wheat or barley or yeah. anything on them. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good spot for it. But everything says gluten-free. If it doesn't yeah. Potato chips, <laughs> not always. No, but it's just... People put the the label on things that never had gluten in the first place. Right, right. But then there's those things that naturally just don't have gluten in them. They And for whatever reason, the manufacturer isn't putting gluten-free, but that would be a Mm -hmm. thing like, can Mm -hmm. I eat this food? There's... I think it's okay. Even, you know, a potato chip could be manufactured in the same plant as bread. Well... And get cross-contaminated that way. Precisely. Or you can look at two types of tortilla chips, right? One can be all corn, so it's corn, salt, and oil. The other one can be a multigrain that has maybe some rye in it or some wheat flour as a binder or something like that. If those go down the same line, then they can be cross-contaminated like that, right? So you'd ha- you just have to be careful about those kinds of things. Yeah. So home cooking, or if you're suspecting that a restaurant is saying that it's gluten-free, but you feel like you're getting a reaction, that would be a place to test it as well. Or some mm-hmm. of those products with that it's not clearly gluten-free, but it's clearly, but it's not clearly full of gluten. Yeah. My cousin has sort of a weird form of celiac where he only discovered it because he was super anemic. Oh yeah. And so even if he eats a sandwich on regular bread, he feels fine. It's just damaging his insides. And, and didn't find out till he was in his late 50s. Yeah. Right, so there's a couple of main times where people will be diagnosed with celiac. It's usually in early adulthood, late teens, early adulthood, that will people will be diagnosed. And then again, in sort of middle age, people will be diagnosed. I mean, you can be diagnosed at any time, but those are those two kind of main times to be diagnosed with things. There used to be those classic symptoms of celiac disease that would be weight loss and diarrhea and stomach upset every time you ate it. But they actually find that those classic symptoms are much less common than atypical types of symptoms. So Mm. there are a lot of people who are asymptomatic. They can eat as much bread as they want and feel Mm. totally fine, but their intestines getting damaged. They have anemia. They have osteoporosis. They have this, that, and the other thing. That seems super dangerous because you would never know if you've been contaminated. Exactly. Exactly. So that being that hypervigilant is is really, really important there. And there's people who can't share margarine with her family because of the... Well, that's the cross-contamination there, right? And that's something that... That's the biggest thing that is really, really... Um, an issue for people. So it's estimated that 70% of people who are following a strict gluten-free diet 
are getting a fair amount of gluten through cross-contamination. That's messed up. And it's really difficult, um, depending on what the family situation is like. Often when it's younger kids, the family will go gluten-free because just like a peanut allergy or some other kind of anaphylactic, it's easier, right? Because you can't, I mean, my little kids, you can't keep them out of anything, right? And they're dirty. So, (laughs) So it's just easier to eliminate it from the house. But say that you are a young adult, just diagnosed, living with a family, family full of gluten eaters that maybe there's picky eaters in there maybe there's people that are just not interested in changing that's a high risk for cross-contamination there because everything like crumbs in the butter or Mm -hmm. um you know how well did you wash the counter between making this or did you spill exactly cutting boards are a big one toasters are a huge one too for people all these things but yeah those those condiments are a really big thing there so double dipping actually can make people sick <laughs> i like personally on a side note i'm not grossed out by double dipping but it could make people sick in yeah. some oh. cases so to sum up the nema seems to work the way that it says it's going to work i really like that the creators are really upfront about what it can do what it can't do they seem to be really looking for ways to make their product better and safer and validate what they're trying to do. And so those are all some really, really positive signs for this type of product. And it's really great too, that they don't try to say that this will replace having to worry about what's in your food or knowing about Mm. food and that it's just another tool. And that's a very realistic thing. So the device is really expensive. Yeah. Out of the reach of a lot of people, but for those who could afford it and are, you know, tech minded, it might be able to give them some peace of mind. So since we're talking about devices that can tell us what's in our food, we'll move on to Lauren's segment, who's going to tell us about the SIO. Hey, Laura, want to try a quarter? Yes. Too bad. All you can get is the SIO. Uh... <laughs> the SIO, it's super hard to research because a lot of other devices have similar names. It's a portable spectrometer developed by Consumer Physics. I'm assuming they chose the name for its Latin roots. Consumer Physics. Yep, Consumer Physics. That's like a bad movie, like, corporation that the villain would belong to. <laughs> hey, remember Applied Steel. Consumer Physics is jointly owned. There's, there's scientists in San Francisco and scientists in Israel, so it's an American-Israeli company. I'm assuming they chose the name Sio for its Latin roots, where Sio means to distinguish or to dissect, and that is what this handy little gizmo is supposed to do. In theory, you're to point it at your food or your pills, and it will give you a molecular readout right on your smartphone. It's pretty cool. That sounds very, very futuristic. It's a first-generation tricorder. I totally want one. <laughs> but for something less than five years in the public eye, the SIO has a dark and sordid history with investors and early users alike. And, of course, the jury is still out on whether it does anything useful or not. Hmm. In 2014, Consumer Physics put out a Kickstarter campaign for the SIO, which quickly raised over $2.7 million for production. And then people waited. In 2016, the Kickstarter page went down, so there was no information and no physical product delivered to the over 130,000 backers. Eee. Finally, in 2017, SIO devices were delivered to some of the long-suffering investors. And now it is available for purchase on their website. What did these folks wait so patiently for? Not much, I'm afraid. (laughs) The associated phone app allows you to scan foods and medicines, but its database is woefully small. Like it doesn't have all of the fruits that are standard in your, your grocery store. Like it'll do an apple, but 
may not do a kiwi. Really? <laughs> won't tell you what's in a kiwi. Yeah. Hmm. It won't recognize it. Oh, it just, so it just has no idea what yeah. you're pointing it at. Yeah. Interesting. To get the SIO to scan these other items, or to perform more of its touted functions, users need to purchase the developer software and write their own applets to run on the device. And as a side note, I didn't realize that I hated the word applet until I read it so many times doing this research. <laughs> it's too cutesy, applet. So let's it sounds like a tiny apple. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> so let's take a look at the top Amazon review for the SIO. Robert here writes... Received this yesterday after waiting almost two years, and boy, am I disappointed. You aren't given the option to save the raw scan data from the instrument. The graph showing the scan results labels the y-axis intensity and the x-axis wavelength, but there are no units or values shown. So you're just looking at a plot without any meeting because you don't know the numbers. Developer's license costs $250, which is more than the actual meter itself cost. This is a little old. The device costs $299 on their website. If you're expecting to be able to build useful applications or get useful data from this other than the pre-built applets, then don't waste your money. I used the pain pill applet and it didn't even recognize Advil liquid gels. I created my own mini applet, taught it what Advil liquid gels looked like, and then when I scanned one, it didn't even recognize it after I had just finished 10 scans so it could learn the liquid gels. The only applets that I have had any semblance of success with are the cheese scanning and body fat applets. Cheese scanning! Yep. <laughs> It may be fun to play around with to tell the difference between different objects, but it's a long way from being the technical tool as it was advertised on their Kickstarter campaign. There isn't even a spec sheet to tell you what wavelengths it admits or detects. Then he says, I'm sorry I yet again backed a Kickstarter campaign that failed to deliver a product worthy of supporting. I'm never backing another Kickstarter campaign again. And, well, that's a shame because there is a lot of really cool things on Kickstarter. Come on, Robert. Don't scan them all. The reviews aren't all bad, of course. And the SIO is the first of its kind. There are several other mini spectrometers that are coming to market as well. And not for nothing, Consumer Physics has teamed with Cargill, so a major uh, agricultural corporation, to develop apps that use the SIO to scan both animal feed and whole milk for analysis. For an initial outlay of 499 for the device and a monthly service fee of 180 on a 12-month commitment, you can scan dry forage. Then there's another $65 attachment to scan the liquid whole milk. I could see this coming in handy for medium-sized farms that need to meet certain requirements. Yeah, and definitely. Check, and Cargill does as well, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. The team at SparkFun, which is a really cool website for this kind of thing, they bought a SIO, they tested it, and then they, they did a meticulous teardown of it to see what made it tick. They rip it all apart. The SIO has a very impressive and tiny integrated circuit board and an even more impressive and tiny sensor array. From the inside, it looks like, with the right software and application, the SIO could be a useful piece of analytical technology someday. Apparently, consumer physics is now moving away from the handheld scanner. The current SIO, it's, it looks like a key fob for, for your car. I'm clicking like people <laughs> on the podcast can see it. So it's, it's about three inches high, and it's got a little stand, and it's really cute. It's got one button. The one user is, interface is a button, and then it's got a USB cord that plugs into your computer. But they're moving away from this handheld scanner and working on getting the spectrometer technology small enough to embed in standard cell phones and into new digital scales that can scan food nutrients as the scales weigh them. So you can see this pound of apples gives you this many calories and this molecular breakdown. So I'm hesitant to endorse the SIO straight out because it has shown a lot of problems and blind spots, but this technology may be coming quickly. And I don't think you'll be able to use your phone to scan useful nutritional information on a tomato while standing at Safeway, but that would be kind of cool. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. I read a, an article about this when mm-hmm. I was first just looking at what is this device? And it was a, I wish I had that article there, but one of the creators of Sio was in a grocery store with the author of the article and they were scanning an apple and he was saying, oh, it's scanning this compound, which is the sweetness compound in the apple, or, or this is the one that gives you that apple flavor. And so I would choose this apple because it's high and not that apple because it's low. And I couldn't help but think, well, that's interesting. But what if I don't like my apples the way that you like your apples? Mm-hmm. So I, ha- I would have some concern about it saying like, this is a good apple versus this is a bad apple because there's, you know, I like tart apples. So if you're only, if you're idea is that apples should be sweet, then Granny Smiths are going to rate fairly low, And but I like a tartar apple. Well, if you can't even tell what's on the graph. Then... <laughs> Fair enough, right? And that was going to be my next point. So what if this technology takes off? What if you have 30 people standing around the bin of apples at Safeway? <laughs> Scanning each individual apple. (laughs) Grocery shopping is already the worst. It's going to be horrible. (laughs) And what if in the parenting wars, the mommy down the street says, before I send my kid over for a play date, can I get the complete molecular breakdown of everything you're serving? No, no. People are just going to scan their children and compare them at that point. (laughs) Well, that's another point too. Like (laughs) my kid is better than your kid because it has this many body fats. That wasn't grammatically correct, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what if, like, school lunch criteria, like, say your your kid's bringing the lunch from home, and it has to match these perfect nutritional breakdowns? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's slippery slope that I'm, I'm getting into here, but it's the kind of technology where do we really need all of this information in a personal setting? And she were talking about with your stuff. Like, it's great for, for Cargill to scan feeds. Sure. And it's great for smaller companies that are producing foods or producing things with a molecular value that they want to tell their consumers about without getting super expensive tests. But do you really need it in your phone? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we obsess about food as it is. Orthorexia is a big thing right now with the whole clean eating craze. Do we really need to obsess about it that much more? Right. I mean, an apple is still good for you, even if it rates slightly lower on whatever value they're testing to s- that they use as the marker yeah. of a good apple. And that right? was my next question is like, <laughs> as a nutritional professional, would you rather people ate a variety of healthsome foods or would, or would you rather they knew the exact molecular breakdown of everything they ate? Variety of whole foods, 100%. Mm-hmm. The more we learn about individual nutrients and their role, the more we tend to come back to the idea of if you eat food that's not processed very much, most of it being plant food, and you eat to a level where you feel satisfied and not too much for yourself, but not under eating, you tend to be healthier. That's more, that's where we, it tends to come back to because we always, we always look at these nutrients individually. And then we look at a food, well, that has that lots of nutrients. And then people eat tons of that and we're not fixing problems. We're not getting healthier just from that one thing. And we're not enjoying it. And we're not enjoying it for sure. For sure. Because now, oh, I can't eat that berry. I must eat blueberries because they have more of this thing. And then, you know, 10 years later we find out, well, yeah, that thing is important, but not as important as we thought it was. Yeah. So just eat the blue, just eat whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing the Kickstarter and thinking that it was a device where you could basically put down like your whole plate of food and scan it and it would like just tell you all of the macronutrients. Nope. So I feel like I was misled by the advertising. 
I mean, may, they could at one point, maybe, but it sounds like the technology is nowhere it's close definitely not there to yet. that. No, it's right? got the little scanner with a with a little button, and you point it at one thing, or it's got a little pod, not as pod like uh, Laura's thing had, but a you put it on like a pill on a little tray that sits underneath the device, and it shows you. Right. Unless it's an Advil, unless it's Advil liquid gel. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, for sure. I'm always kind of wary because the, to have a small device with very small components, mm-hmm. as you're saying, and hopefully it's small enough to fit into an already very small smartphone, be able to use fairly advanced technology to detect a huge array of different things. I mean, it's not that it can't be done, but I have a hard time believing that we're already there, that we've gone from these massive machines in labs mm to smartphone apps and tiny little circuitry. Like, I feel like labs would be moving over to that stuff so fast if it already existed to the effect that we're wanting it to exist. It will probably get there one day. They're really cool looking when you... Because that... that website had ripped them apart. They've got pictures and then they go through it all. And it's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's... I don't think it's quite there yet. Yeah. And for someone like me, because even when I use things like Spark People... I would track every calorie obsessively and track every minute. I would obsess over something like this. And Absolutely. it would not, as we were talking before, it, it would not be a good thing for someone like me. And then I would feel even more guilty eating vegetarian poutine for dinner like we did on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there are scales, like food scales out there that will that claim that they can tell you exactly the nutritional breakdown of what's in your scale. So you can figure out like what's in that apple. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the kind, same technology. I don't know that it is. I think okay. what those scales do is that you enter in, this is an apple and it oh. draws from its database of nutrients. And so it takes the weight of actually this apple versus that food nutrient okay. database. Yeah, I don't know that it's using that spectrometer. Because that's what aspect. consumer physics wants to do is scales. So. Right. So so what they they would be doing then is actually using that mass spectrometry to measure how much protein, mm-hmm. how much carb, how much fiber is in this apple. Whereas the food scales that exist, they're drawing from a food database. Yeah. They that's the only technology that we really have for that from what I could find. I mean, if I'm wrong, somebody please correct me, but that's what they're doing. So they're drawing from something like MyFitnessPal or Spark mm-hmm. People. So yeah, if your apple is not like standard medium apple, you'll know a better idea, but it's still not for sure 100%. Yeah. And the biggest thing is like, if you're cooking your own food, well, is my lasagna, if my lasagna doesn't line up in terms of ingredients and nutrition to whatever lasagna entry is in my fitness pal then it doesn't matter if the scale can weigh exactly how much lasagna is, Mm -hmm. it still doesn't line up. So you still have, it's still not 100% accurate unless you know exactly what it went into that and you make it exactly the same way. And who needs 100% accurate anyway? You don't. Unless you're like putting your body through some sort of giant physical test and you have to know exactly what's going in and what's going out. I mean, elite athletes sometimes will do this, um, usually with the guidance of, registered dietitians and um, health health professionals because but I mean elite athletes are doing very specific tasks in a very specific way and performance you know a tenth of a second makes a difference to them so this many grams of something versus this point too many grams of something maybe makes a difference mm-hmm. the other time that you'd really want to know is if you're doing an experiment and you're using like a metabolic kitchen and you're doing metabolic experiments where you're really trying to measure how much is going in versus how much is going out and how is food metabolized or how is this versus that metabolized 
And that's going to be a pretty rare circumstance. Well, yeah. It really is. You're not going to need it as as bundled software in your phone for that. People who are running around to work and their after-school activities and whatever else they're doing are not living in that way, right? I mean, we're not aware of half the food we put into our mouths as it is, so never mind being, like, down to the gram. And there's stray gluten in the air, so it doesn't bloody matter anyway. (laughs) Okay. So that's the SIO, and that's how it's pronounced according to its inventor. (laughs) So interesting, but not quite where we were thinking or hoping it would be maybe one day. Maybe one day, and maybe we won't have a choice, and it'll come with our phones anyway. Right, so, right. But it's your choice to use it or not. Well, until until your phone just starts popping up with this stuff every time you pull it out of your pocket. And that's when I move into the woods. <laughs> Jim gets so mad when his TV advertises at him. Can you imagine his... Like, oh. that snack you're about to put in your face is bad for you. Oh my gosh, my life is going to get so hard, you guys. (laughs) Okay, so some interesting info. Maybe we'll hear about the SIO again down the road, but for right now... Not nothing to write home about, no, is what I understand. Not worth the price or the developer price for making your own applets. Yeah, yeah. You know, it would be one thing if it was like a user database where you can just add things in and it's growing. It's sort of like any other type of crowdsource thing. And that's something that the NEMA does, like if they have a community. So if you test something at a place, then you can add it to the, hey, gluten was found here kind of yeah, community. You don't have to spend $5 to test this thing next Yeah, time. exactly. And they may have something like that, but I didn't see it. This seems a sure. little bit more like it's proprietary um, corporate information. Absolutely. again, correct me if I'm wrong and you know different. (laughs) Okay, so now we're going to move on to a a device that isn't about testing what's in the food. It's about testing what's in you. Whoa! Whoa! So Ashlyn's going to tell us all about the Vita Stick. So Vita Stick, stick spelled S-T-I-Q, because they're cool. They're they're hip and with it. The Vita Stick came across my Facebook feed about six weeks ago. It was just a sponsored post, and I immediately shared it with Laura because I knew that she would appreciate it in the same way that I do. It is a small device. It looks like a clicky pen, and the like the lead of the pen or the pencil depresses, so it's. You can poke yourself with it, but it's not, it's really blunt. It'll just sort of leave a little indentation when you poke yourself with it. So you don't actually pierce the skin. Right, right. You dampen the tip of the pen and press it against your hands and feet and face in specific points as directed by the app. So the app will tell you, now we're testing for vitamin C, so put it on the side of your ring finger nail. It's, like, very specific. That is very specific. Okay. It's kind of creepy. And it detects the levels of vitamins in your blood. Except it definitely does not do that. (laughs) I was waiting for the punch. That's Uh, awesome. So the website is very sleek and modern, very with it. And it claims that the device can track 26 vitamins and minerals. It urges you to check your levels daily. So it kind of wants this to become the next Fitbit where you're testing it every day and you know where whether your levels are going up and down, stuff like that. Sounds a lot more involved than a Fitbit. So most people 
Well, you can do the basic regimen, which is only a few of them, or you can do the total care package where you test all of them every day. Oh boy. Ooh, the spa day with my stick. Yeah. So honestly, if this was something that actually worked, I would be super into it because I love data like this. <laughs> I made, I've made like charts to track my blood sugar and stuff and I'm like, data, this is great. But that is important <laughs> for your health. Well, yeah, but so is vitamins, right? Kind of. Oh, honey. More dangerously, it also says that expensive tests and specialist checkups are not needed anymore. Right. Whoa. <laughs> not good. Bad. Uh, the website features the logos of CNET, Huffington Post, Wired, and other tech sites where reviews are linked, which lends the site sort of this really real air of credibility. Like, we were featured on all these places. No, right. We're definitely but, but for real. Featured doesn't mean anything. Right, right. <laughs> We bought advertising space on all these places. Mm-hmm. The air of credibility is definitely heightened by the line FDA approved. Oh. So it definitely works, right? Oh. <laughs> That's so frustrating. It's important to check what it's approved for. <laughs> and as many sites have reported, what it got tested and approved for is as a galvanic skin response device. So does oh. anybody know what else is a galvanic skin response device? A lie detector, an yeah. e-meter for Scientology. It's basically a tiny lie detector test. Really? Yeah. And, and so those just test, like, small amounts of current going through your skin, Exactly, right? yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's testing how sweaty you are. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so at the bottom of the website, as usual, is the disclaimer we've come to expect of such devices. Vitastick is not a medical device. It cannot prevent, treat, or cure any medical problems, nor can it diagnose a medical condition. Just like any modern gadget, it helps users track their smart lifestyle. Smart lifestyle. Okay. So initially my thought was, wow, if I press this up against a wall, it'll probably tell me my vitamin levels are just fine. (laughs) So I wondered how many people are getting taken in by this thing. The answer appears to be quite a few, unfortunately. Just like the SIO, the company ran a successful crowdfunding campaign. This one was on Indiegogo. For the first version, it raised $278,000. And then it launched a second version and raised another 365 grand. So that makes all three of our devices crowdfunded. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way of the future. Yeah. That's scary. So that's a lot of cash for a pin that measures how sweaty you are. Some of the people who got the device were somewhat less than impressed. <laughs> <laughs> somewhat? <laughs> I, really, <laughs> I really enjoyed the, uh, the reviews on their actual Indiegogo site because they're, they're all public, right? All these comments. So one commenter asked, I'm sorry to ask this, but can you explain what evidence you have this works and is accurate? (laughs) The variances I get are dependent on how you use it and should not be. There's no way for me to know if this works. The campaigner replied, Hi, Matthew. Every condition has an impact on the person's vitamin and mineral status, like time of day, activity, food intake, stress, etc. Vitastick is not a medical device, but a vitamin tracker that indicates a general vitamin trend. It is common for the results to vary from one measurement to another, as the user has no prior measuring experience. So, tell me how that works, Laura. With my vitamin levels, are they going to change as I get stressed out? Well, like, if your body uses things, and, like, yeah, your vitamin and mineral levels will change, just like blood sugar will change, and cholesterol will change. But, like, within ten things. minutes, when between one test and the next? <laughs> Probably not a, not so much that you're going to be suddenly in deficiency. Like, not so much that it would matter. Like, things will move around in that out-of-body stores and being used in that. 
But it sounds like they're making up a reason why their device doesn't work and just mm-hmm. saying, oh, you just don't know what you're doing. Right. That's what I'm hearing from this. Like, no, I don't... <laughs> like, if you test it, there might be minute changes, but that is normal. Yeah, yeah. Not, I had a stressful so, day, so now I'm vitamin A deficient. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they... I'm not going to talk over <laughs> you. Just go ahead. <laughs> I... I think it's interesting, like the gluten sensor, it is it doesn't give you a readout of you have this much vitamin C in your blood with, you know, a value. Okay. It, it gives you sort of a, a line, and it tells you where on that line-ish you are. So you're deficient, you're fine, you have too much. So it's like a, a Facebook political test. <laughs> are you left or right? Yeah, Are you where are you on the spectrum? Okay, so if it's like too much enough or not enough, they still have to have like Values. They still have to have reference ranges for that. Yeah, but they don't tell you what they are. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. So another person says, Hello, I am getting different ratings in a single day, so I'm not sure if it's working properly or to rely on its ratings. I'm confused, as I do not know if I can base my nutritional correction based on this reading. I am getting a lot of vitamin and mineral toxicity, but I do not know the reason for this toxicity, as only deficiency guidance is given. (laughs) Please help. They reply... Hi, our device measures the electrical resistance of an acupuncture point in relation to the reference point. Therefore, the device does not directly check the concentration of this particular vitamin or mineral. It informs the user about the relationship between the present body condition and a particular vitamin mineral level, and it tracks the general vitamin mineral status trend. Vita Stick shows- No, it doesn't! No, no, it doesn't! It does not! Because no, no. they just said they can't! This next line is great. Vitastick shows qualitative information without defining quantitative values. How? That's so much gibberish. And then levels. I'm looking at our cat at our screen right now, and Laura went off the What you were getting into when you had me on this podcast? Okay. (laughs) And then in another reply, they say it's like weighing yourself five times a day. It won't be the same every time. In the morning, your body weight is the lowest, and as the day progresses, your body mass changes. Our recommendation is to use VitaStick each time at about the same time once a day. So, apparently, this will show you the trends without worrying you with the ups and downs over a single day. Okay, that's a very wishy-washy way of saying we don't actually measure the thing, because they Mm -hmm. just said they can't measure the thing. So, what? you can't show a trend if you're not actually measuring the thing. Yeah. I don't know how vitamin and mineral levels are supposed to impact my electrical conductivity, but that's yeah. their claim. All right. Are you getting enough vitamin lightning? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're in Pikachu chewables. Oh, God. So their website and some of the reviews claim that it works through EAV, electroacupuncture, which is when you get acupuncture done and then they hook up the needles to electricity, like a TENS unit, which is an actual medical device that can ease pain. I don't even know how this qualifies as electroacupuncture since nothing is penetrating the skin and it's measuring the electricity rather than electrocuting you. A tiny bit for your own good. Anyway, apparently measuring the skin response at these particular acupuncture spots in your hands and feet can give away information about your vitamin and mineral levels. That is their claim. It is totally ridiculous. So we went from good to slightly plausible to... Bananas. Definitely bad. Yeah. Yeah. That it's not even close to what it says it's going to do at all. Mm-hmm. But it has a cue. Yeah. yeah. By a stick. <laughs> I just, I don't, I feel bad for the people who've gotten taken in by this. 
It's so ridiculous. Yeah. Another thing that they offer is the pro version so oh. that practitioners can have people in at their office and test all their vitamins for them. Guess what kind of practitioners are going to use that? What an excellent addition to your practice, don't you think, Laura? Mm-mm. I do not. <laughs> now available at your chiropractor and your nutritionist. nutritionist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. They share an office, you know. So I downloaded the app because, of course, it has an app. <laughs> And I went through some of the tutorials. It does actually have some, like, neat info about a bunch of different vitamins and nutrients, like the deficiency and toxicity symptoms. But the recommended daily intake of each one, as well as how much they recommend as a supplement each day. Apparently, the tolerable upper intake of vitamin C is 2,000 milligrams a day. And beyond that, you get the toxicity symptoms. But then, on the same page, for treatment of a common cold, you should take up to 3 grams daily. Seems like bad advice, especially since vitamin C doesn't do a damn thing for colds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Overall, I would give this no stars, and I would (laughs) advise against spending several hundred dollars on it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that is... Yeah, as soon as you shared that with me, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way this thing does (laughs) what it says it's going to do. But they... Yeah. It is very slick advertising. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just even from the still photos that I saw of things, I'm like, yeah, this looks fancy and hip and with it and like very, very in style. Very on right trend, now. yeah. Oh, yeah. very on trend, yeah. For the so, Fitbit crowd, this is like candy. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, that definitely the Vita Stick does not do a thing at yeah. all. That is really frustrating. I did hear about a device that is similar to the Vita Stick. It's called the Vitameter. Hmm. This one is new. Uh, apparently the developers pitched it on a show called The Disruptors. Mm. I haven't heard of this, but it's... Like a Dragon's Den type thing? I'm assuming so. You know, the whole disruption trend in Silicon Valley and tech is like finding new ways to change the old industries of doing things. New, more efficient, easier to use ways that bring, bring the power to the hands of the people as opposed to labs and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so this Vitameter is, I thought it sounded a lot like the Vita Stick, but what this one does is it works more like a blood glucose meter. So you, okay, do you actually, actually put pe- blood in it. Yeah, you actually put blood in it and then it's supposed to be able to measure certain vitamin and mineral levels from there. So it's supposed to give you that point of access right there, snapshot in time, and also then help you monitor if you're taking supplements or something, how am I doing? What am I low in? What should I add in? Can it do 28 of them though? Um, no, right now. And honestly, there is very little information available. If you go to the website for the Vitameter, it says, you know, this would be a great thing, but there is no other info available. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's really, really limited right now. Um, it first came out in 2016, so it looks like... Um, it's probably still in development. Still in development. Mm-hmm. It's got a long way to go, is my guess. Yeah, that point of testing, that, that point of care testing would be really interesting. I'm always concerned about these types of devices who say, you know, you don't need a healthcare practitioner anymore because you can just do it yourself and interpret yourself. But the thing is, just having this device and taking a measurement doesn't mean that you can actually interpret and know what to do with that. I mean, that's something that's really hard and takes years of study. And even then, we don't even have the best idea of what to do with these types of things. And I know for some of the things, I have to wonder, you know, you're saying that your device can test this level in minutes, but when I send somebody to get this level done in a lab, they like it has to be stored in a really special way and it has to be tested in this amount of time and it has to be like takes weeks for the results to come back. It's 
things like that. So I'm wondering, like, how have they distilled that down into mm-hmm. a few seconds process? Yeah. I'm not saying it won't be possible one day. I'm just wondering, like, some of these leaps seem really intense. So, uh, yeah. So that's a, a device. This That Vitameter seems way more plausible than the Vitastick, but it also seems to have tons of drawbacks. So yeah. the Vitastick can't possibly Worth right. At least with that thing, you give it your blood, which has a way of working. Exactly. But you know, or just being able to sense. I was, I was wondering when you first told me about this, is if it could somehow sense through the skin to the capillaries or something <laughs> and get those readings, like sort of a spectrometry way. Out, like, that would be ridiculously expensive, body. though. Well, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, yeah. No, it couldn't do that. <laughs> It's I mean, some of the things that they test for, too, are, like, glucosamine, it'll test for, uh, coenzyme Q10, omega-3 fatty acids. So Only those ones. are really hot-selling supplements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But not something that I think a lot of people are super concerned about if you are a professional. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, not at all. Testing your omega-3 levels is... Maybe one day we can do that, but really we just go on like lifestyle and diet history and you can adjust from there. Mm-hmm. So that's the bite of stick. Uh, I do like how we, we didn't uh, plan this out, but we definitely went in descending yeah. order of uselessness. <laughs> <laughs> the slippery slope. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's all sorts of devices. I think that the trend is only going to continue that there's more and more devices like this. Especially since they don't need to go through any sort of review process if they can just get a Kickstarter going. Because if you can convince 100,000 people that this is a cool device that they want, you don't need to prove to an investment company that it's going to work. Exactly. Exactly. And this is, and that's exactly why Kickstarter is so, that's why you see so many of these devices on Kickstarter, because Mm -hmm. maybe they tried conventional methods, or they know that they can't get it through conventional testing or rigorous type testing. So if you just circumvent that, you just go around, yeah, people want tricorders, okay? People (laughs) want hoverboards. People want all sorts of things like that. It doesn't mean that it's real. It doesn't mean that it can happen or that it can happen now or anything with the technology we have. But Kickstarter can make us believe with their fancy videos and CGI that yeah, it exists now. It's the modern stagecoach with, you know, the the guy hawking the alcohol at the back saying it'll cure everything. The medicine show. That's it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely it is. So I think it's really something I mean It's buyer beware for everything, Mm -hmm. but for a lot of these devices, I think it seems from the research that I did and from what you guys have done, you really just have to take a step back and say, just because something sounds cool doesn't mean it can actually do this thing. Funny how many times we run into that, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we want cool stuff to exist, but cool stuff does exist. And when it comes to health, there's lots of great things that you can do for your health. Like vaccines. Like vaccines, like getting enough sleep. Like <laughs> That's not technology, your... Laura. But these are the thing. They're not exciting. They're not cool. They're not yeah. new. So people don't want to do them. It's not a, I can just test this thing and get my answer and then take a thing and then I'm done. It's lifestyle things that our society doesn't work on so much or, you know, we actively work against in in the case of vaccines and that. But from what we have, we know those things work. So it might not be cool, but it works. Stick with it. Get your shots. Eat well. Be active. Get some sleep. You'll probably be okay. (laughs) Well, that's advice I've never followed. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, thank you both for your excellent contributions here. I really enjoyed hearing about these new devices that we should not drop our money into. <laughs> and we will, uh, we will chat again in a month's time. Thanks for joining me, both of you. And uh, have a great night, everybody. Good night. night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Gem now? <laughs> I'm just gonna make that Someone joke. has to. But that's Lauren's job. <laughs> I was opening my face and she said that I can't I can't escape him anywhere, you guys. You'll have to get better friends, I'm sorry. That's okay. No, I like you guys. It's all good. <laughs>